Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. And as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today is an author, podcaster, and martial artist who was born to an old traveling circus family. When he was 16, almost had his hand torn off by a hyena. He started the UK's first ever extreme pro wrestling promotion in 1998 and co-founded the Combat Performance Academy. He founded Club Camaro Martial Arts. In 2005, he created, wrote, and presented the DVD Cross Training in the Martial Arts, The Anatomy of Combat, and the sequel DVD in 2006. In 2008, he launched the first franchise to CCMA, CCMA Hastings. His brand new book was recently released and is titled When Parents Aren't Around, A Young Person's Guide to Self-Protection. And I could go on and on reading his impressive resume, but I just want to talk to him. So please welcome my guest today, Mr. Jamie Club. How are you doing today, sir? Doing very well, Brian. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad we got in contact and I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to, to learning more about you and, and uh, having a fun chat here. So, and you, I know you said you, you've heard the show, so you kind of know how we start things off. I want, I want to go back to the beginning. I want to know where that first spark came from, that first interest and kind of what launched your martial arts journey okay brian um so uh i mean i think there was lots of contributory factors probably going going on subconsciously with me but i always pin it back to uh to comic books i mean that that actually probably set me on my journey it wasn't when i was nine years old i did a, a week of judo although it made an impact on me i didn't continue it mm-hmm. uh i didn't pick up the next training in martial arts formally until i was so I was 14. When I was 13, I, I became a sort of martial arts geek. We lived in the middle of nowhere. Um, the circus had stopped touring. Uh, my parents um, had got involved in uh, the film industry. Um, they were training and supplying animals to the audiovisual industry. So that was movies, commercials, still photography, live performance, quite a variety of different things there. But the problem was the place they chose was the old circus winter quarters. That is uh, the winter quarters of my grandparents' circus. And uh, although they bought land off my uh, grandparents, they where they built their zoo, um, it put us in pretty much smack bang in the sticks in the middle of nowhere. There was no uh, very close martial arts schools. So my interest in martial arts came from reading uh, what you guys would call G.I. Joe, what we knew as Action Force at the time. Okay. And there was a couple, he had a couple of ninjas in there. There was Storm Shadow and Snake Eyes. I fell in love with what they did. I was always a comic book fan ever since I was a kid. Never really put two and two together up to that point about Batman being a martial artist at, at the time. Um, you know, as I said, you know, martial arts, you know, they weren't uh, not of interest, but any more than any other kid, I suppose. You know, it was, in, it was just like one of many other sort of uh, interesting mystical or or, uh, you know, um, activities that was going on in the zeitgeist, uh, you know, of growing up in the in the, in the eighties. So I read about Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow in uh, in our version, Action Force, and uh, and I wanted to pursue ninjutsu. This is about a year of reading books, you know, actually getting textbooks that were connected to it, and a lot of the time 
any, I just wanted books on martial arts. I mean, a lot of the time you couldn't just get some on ninjutsu. So my, you know, my dad for birthdays and Christmases, he would get me uh, not just ninjutsu books, but also comprehensive books on martial arts. So I started reading about all the other different martial arts as well. So they, they became of a big interest to me too. Um, my mum took me to my first ninjutsu class about, it was a two hour journey away from us. So it wasn't going to be an ongoing thing, wow. but to, 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 just to get scratch that itch, if you like. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was, I was disappointed to be honest um pretty much i think you know i came back with you know that kind of feeling you get when uh, i think a lot of people get it when when they're when they're dying to see uh, an amazing sequel to a to a in a franchise of movies and they've waited a long period of time i think we know what we're talking about here yep, yep. <laughs> for a very long period of time and you watch it and you come back and you because you've invested so much you want to say how great it is but then as time goes by you look back and you go well, actually, it wasn't that great. <laughs> well, <laughs> when you grow up in a traveling circus, you see people doing incredible things. So I was expecting to see acrobatic ninjas and all the rest. And even though I knew it was not going to be like the fantasy stuff that I was seeing in the comics and things like that, I, I think I was expecting to see, uh, you know, some people with extraordinary abilities, so to speak. And it really just it didn't really uh, impress me that much. And I think the four hour round trip didn't impress my mother too much either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, as, as supportive as she was. But anyway, we we went okay. So that it scratched. Let's go for a, a local school. So I so I found a school in a style called Cicado, which uh, which is suitably exotic and different enough. Um, it was, <laughs> um, and uh, it was a Taekwondo spin off. Uh, never made it out the out of England, to the best of my knowledge. Okay. Um, uh, it's pretty much extinct now. I think um, I think the, the style that's been practiced today isn't the one that comes from the branch that I did. Although I still see some of the same some of the guys that that I trained with. Then I got my first stand in it when I was 16 um, and I changed to taekwondo and then I was sort of headhunted for a kickboxing class and and uh, when I was 18 19 and uh, that instructor had me go all over the country so as soon as I got my driving uh, license I was you know within a year of me getting my driving license I think it was I got my driving license when I was 18 and so I was 19 when I was doing the kickboxing and as soon as uh, uh, you know, he could. He, he got me straight um, going all around the country, um, teaching kickboxing classes. Uh, so um, I was doing that for about four and a half years. And when I could, I cross trained. You know, when, mm-hmm. because I was driving all over the country, I'd go with. There's another local martial arts class. I'd go and uh, and I'd be involved in that. Uh, it also exposed me very much to what I call the darker side of martial arts. Yep. So um, I mean, that's a, probably a story from another day, <laughs> and certainly for another book. Yep. But uh, yeah, yeah, that. that I saw all that side of it, and uh, and that's when. I, and then after that, I got into the um, I got into wushu, um, uh, Chinese martial arts. I trained that on and off for five years. Again, that was a three hour round trip for me, which was cool for me because I was doing the driving. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so uh, and I, and I, and I pursued wushu because I wanted to do a martial arts act. Um, in, you know, I wanted to get back to my circus route. Oh, so I wanted okay. to do a, a live performance act. So I'm, I'm, I'm an eighth generation uh, professional performer in that respect. So wow. I, I kind of fulfilled my, my, my view there. My, 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 um, on my mother's side, they trace their circus, their traveling performance, uh, routes back before the invention of, of circus. They, okay. It goes back to, uh, yeah, the Frost Fair in 1684. There's uh, a listing of all the performers that were there when the Thames froze over in London. Wow. And the Frost Fair was on, and there's a member of our family listed there. Um, we, we, we haven't got the... We still need the records to make the con- connection of about mm-hmm. a century there, but it's somebody who bears the name 
and then a century later you've got people touring with that name which are on our family uh, um so that so they kind of make that connection okay. um it's it's uh and and it was commemorated on on, on uh postage stamps in oh, wow. uh, 1984 and the 300 you know um sort of a, a tricentenary um as well so they became a big circus family and um for, for a while and, and very well known so um anyway so my, my point was that i wanted to do a martial arts act because i saw myself as being uh, I, I could then be an eighth generation, um, mm-hmm. and so it's so again another itch I sort of scratched. If you if you like, yeah. did you get um, to do that? Did you actually do the performance then at the circus? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, that's a story in itself. Um, nice. But uh, I, I almost got it into the Edinburgh Fringe because wow. we had a, a friend that was um, again because of the connections with show business. We had people who were putting mm-hmm. stuff on in the Edinburgh Fringe. A few other things fell through. It didn't, it didn't happen. But then. I met up with somebody in a gym who was apparently looking for a martial arts demonstration and people had heard about my act and I sort of shelved it at that point. I'd done um, a performance, so to speak, um, had it videoed um, with all the lighting, all the makeup, all, you know, the costumes, got the performers in. We'd, we'd, we'd done a, we'd done a, um, a sunk, <laughs> most of my inherent, my grand, money my grandfather had uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, <laughs> left for me into trying to put something on and then sort of shelved it because it was just, uh, it was just becoming so frustrated just to try and get it out. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really know what I was doing in, in terms of promotion and and doing the right thing, even though I'd, I'd had that connection. But then somebody heard about it. This guy was a professional wrestler, uh, guy, a gentleman called uh, Stu Allen. He's written his two um, autobiographies recently. Um, became his re- uh, pro wrestler called the Dominator. Uh, he wasn't called the Dominator then, um, and uh, and I didn't know him. But I was introduced to him, and he and he said, "Oh, yeah, I'd like to do a martial arts demonstration." I went, "Oh, well, you know." Uh, and I put him in contact with one of the guys who performed with me in, in the act and said, well, he's really the guy you really want to go to and sort of like brushed him off. And then the next thing I get another phone call from him and he's uh, from, uh, from Stu. And he says, um, uh, this, this guy's talking to me and saying that he will only do a, he'll only do a demonstration with you. And I, and so I said, oh, right. Okay. That's interesting. That was very kind of him to say. And you know, so we said, should we meet up? Let's have a meetup. So I said, all right, okay, let's have a meetup. Let's get talking. And then I started telling him about, you know, th- this act idea that I'd had before. And I wasn't really pushing it at all. I was just, it was just something could do some passing. He was going, oh, that sounds amazing. It's a, it was like a Gothic martial arts act with dancers in and things like that. It was quite unusual. So he thought, well, this could be something really, really different for our show. So he um, he said, well, let's resurrect this. If you've got this stuff, let's resurrect it. So we put the act on for his show. And I said, okay, well, that's what we'll do then. I'll just do, you know, we'll do a, a, a five minute piece for your show, for your pro wrestling show. But once he'd brought me on board, I was immediately starting to help him out. He was doing it for somebody else. I was helping, I helped him out with the lighting and the sound and all, all that side of it all. And we put the, um, the show, we, we sort of worked together almost like partners, even though supposedly the, the people he was working for, they were supposed to be doing all that. But he, he was really, really keen to push this pro wrestling promotion to be something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, so in the end, we said, okay, let's, let's form a partnership. And we broke away and we created something called Extreme World Warfare Pro Wrestling. Uh, eventually became Extreme World Wrestling um, uh, after I left it. And then and then for about two to three years, um, how long was it now? 20, no, 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 we finished in 2002, nine, 1998 to 2002. Okay. So um, at the end, uh, at the end, we did our first performance at the end of 1998. But again, I said, uh, and it was a really long way for me to put my martial arts act on. Mm-hmm. I was never a pro wrestler. I became part of the gimmick I became part of the storyline and I really was very interested in writing the storylines and the and all, all that sort of side of it and we were very interested in promoting the extreme angle as well in in pro wrestling and, and you know Stu was great um, we remain very good friends to this day wow. uh, but but of course in 2002 
we closed the combat performance academy we you know we ran a, a place to recruit new people um but i, I just it, we were just going in different directions you know i wasn't a pro wrestler i was i was a martial artist mm-hmm. and uh um, not, not that pro wrestling isn't a form of performance martial arts. Of course it is. You know, it comes from catch wrestling, which I, I argue is a form of martial art. Uh, you know, the, the definition of what, what is a martial art and what isn't is it, what is and what isn't a martial art something out and for another day, isn't it? Very subjective. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is incredibly subjective. And I haven't heard anybody come back with it with a, with a, um, a strong enough definition either way. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so, so, so I pretty much, um, I, I, I err on the side of caution and pretty much call just about anything with, with connection to um uh, uh training for combat as a form of a form of martial art and anyway so yeah um it, it, as I say, it, it become a very long-winded way for me to do martial performance i went back to martial arts i went back to looking for the very practical side of martial arts and uh, continued cross training uh, jeff thompson was a huge influence on me the writer um jeff thompson there are movies about about his life um, he wrote the book watch my back i'd written to him years before this when I sort of had a wake-up call about martial arts where I'd been put under pressure in a physical fight situation, although I'd come out of it okay, a lot of things were becoming very evident that they weren't practical. You know, a lot of the stuff that I was learning and the very kick-based system, should we say, weren't weren't helping. And really what was the only thing that really got me through was, was uh, tapping into sort of my my background growing up in you know circus community and also you know rudimentaries of boxing and um and pure conditioning <laughs> pretty much with, that's that that's all that was getting me through those you know that these uh these physical altercations i've been in but things like high kicks and uh, uh being reliant on kicking and stuff like that weren't working for me so i'd written to jeff because he was shaking things up he was like very much like the punk rock in the British martial arts scene, he was upsetting loads of people, but I'm um, talking about pragmatism and preemptive striking and, um, and just, you know, it was such a massive shakeup. It was coinciding with the UFC at the time, um, in the nineties. So I wrote to Jeff because initially I'd seen him as a martial arts fanboy, as a person who was collecting martial magazines as this heretic. And now once I'd experienced it myself, uh, bloody nose and all <laughs> it was uh I, I realized what he was talking about um was was ringing true and he wrote two um handwritten letters back to me he was an absolute star he was really really encouraging and gave me lots of advice i ended up going down the um the kickboxing route um and that's when you know i did the uh the teaching for the kit in the kickboxing, which was coinciding with my stuff with the pro wrestling, by the way. Uh, anyway, the kickboxing stopped, the pro wrestling stopped um, for different reasons. Uh, one amicable, the other not. Um, the kickboxing being the not one, and I, and I went just went back into becoming a student again properly. I, I kind of I stayed with the wish a little bit, but really I, I started going into um, some traditional jujitsu and then uh, and then Muay Thai, which I absolutely adored. I trained under Tony Hayes and Warwick Warriors um, in Warwickshire. Uh, my future work, which was near where my future wife lives, so that was convenient. As soon as um, we, we started sharing an accommodation in um, in Kenilworth, then I had access to suddenly this world of martial arts that, that I'd only been able to travel long distances to, if you know what I mean, Brian. Right. Yep. You know, so the Midlands is like a hotbed of martial arts, um, of, of really top martial arts teachers. So that was it. I was able to go and train, train with Jeff. I was invited to his special group that started at six o'clock in the morning. And what, uh, for a period, I trained under his chief instructor as well, who did private lessons with me. Uh, he got me into the martial arts magazines. He liked my writing. So I was able to uh, and what, I, what happened with the martial arts magazines it was a really good deal because the magazine I, I wrote for, to be fair, you know, they you know they just don't pay 
really, you know, right. over in the UK. But the deal they offer is, you know, you write a piece for us, you can have a half a page advert, you know. Uh, so okay. my, so the way I kind of worked that out was, okay, I'll teach, uh, to, to, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll write the article. And, I'll, and if I do an interview on somebody, I get to pick who I get to interview. And I'm only going to pick people I want to tra- interview. And those people, I say to them, well, I need you to train me because if you don't train me, I can't really know, you know, what it feels like. To, you know, what you're telling me is what you're telling me. You know what I mean? I don't, I'm not experiencing it. So that was my crafty way of getting some nice. free training off some of the best instructors in the country. So how, <laughs> how did the how did the writing start? I mean, what made you want to start writing? Oh, my spark for writing started way before my spark for uh, the martial arts. Really? Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. My, I mean, my earliest memories of of any interest in writing, um, I must have been. I wasn't even five years old. There was this um, wonderful couple who lived on our circus, um, this Norwegian couple, Chris and Miriam. And uh, they uh, they had this uh, wooden, uh, I'd like to say mahogany, but I don't know if that actually was the type of wood, but it was a wooden wagon. They had a very ornate wooden wagon. She was an artist. She was actually, you know, she used to paint the ring fence and, uh, and uh, an actual, you know, professional artist. And her husband was a bear trainer. Mm-hmm. And all I remember is um, these memories of seeing she had when she had a bin um, outside a, a wagon. Even that was painted. Even that was decorated. And so I met her, and uh, and ended up going to to a wagon. And the wagon used to smell of coffee beans always. <laughs> so to this day, I make sure we've got a coffee bean uh, grinder here. She had, nice. but she had, she had like the old fashioned coffee bean grinder. I remember that even that was all painted and decorated. Okay. And she would she would tell me stories. She would she would just tell me stories um, all the time, and she'd make these stories up. I'd think Sometimes she tell me stories that are based on, you know, folklore and um, old Norwegian t- um, tales. But she'd regularly tell me pop cultural stories. You know, she'd lo- you know love to tell me stories about Batman. I mean, even though she you know, knew, knew nothing about Batman, but it was <laughs> only what I would be telling. And then she did tell me these stories about it. Then I didn't uh, be encouraged to tell her stories back. And funny enough, for my fifth birthday, I've still got it to this day. She made me a book. She made this book with a lovely illustrated book, handwritten for me for my fifth birthday. Wow. And and in the book, it just told me it just uh, it was a book about me. Really, it was very but, um, about imagination. The, the book was just all about talking about imagination and and how what a wonderful um, trait it is to have to have imagination. So because of that. I dedicated my first book to her, which wasn't a martial arts book. Mm-hmm. In 2008, I wrote a book called The Legend of Salt and Sauce, the true story of Amer- of Britain's most, uh, the amazing story of Britain's most famous elephants. So it was a true story about uh, two elephants who weren't directly connected to my family, but because I'm within the circus community, I had access to so many people within our community who who were contemporaries of these elephants that came over at the uh, the turn of the 20th century at the early 1900s and they they worked in musicals they worked in circuses they were notorious because they they escaped and at least two people um died but the people and connected to them were really fascinating individuals um you know I, I had some great insights to the old school boxing that we used to be in the boxing booths and mm-hmm. what used to happen at the end of a it, again it just opened up this amazing world for me about the past but anyway i dedicated that book to miriam Diogenes, who was um who used to tell me these stories in nice. 2008 so it was, it was wonderful to be able to uh, send her a copy and um and it was a lovely surprise for her and, and yeah and again you know it's uh it's in many ways that got me especially not only got me interested in in writing but also in teaching so so i credit her with with a lot okay. of teaching but i have i have met some amazing teachers in my life not just martial arts teachers mm-hmm. but just teacher teachers who gave up you know hours of their time to to teach me and to 
and really, um, you know, cultivate a lot of my mm-hmm. interests. And it was just um, some wonderful people. So when I do that, I mean, that's why I love being a teacher. Because, okay. uh, you know, you know this, is, this is really, really important to me. But yeah, anyway, so the, the, the writing really got me access to different teachers. I've studied, um, I trained in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for um, six years with Braulio Estema. Again, I, I, I trained a lot with um, Mo Teague combatives guy over here we're not just combatives he's self-protection functional condones an amazing amazing teacher in in the uk and uh, and also i taught for him as well um with his hard target system in uh, 2010 did some good stuff with a security firm which we teach them self-defense weekends and again that was a great test for me because we're often teaching people who had amazing in the field experience and i was having to teach them a self-protection course and so you can imagine the people looking at you, you know, they, yeah. they've killed people, they've, they've yep. seen it all. And they've got, you know, they're looking at me, you know, uh, you know, I'm half the size of some of them, <laughs> things like that, and to win them over. So that's a testament to, I would say to, to Mo's system, certainly, you know, and, uh, and also all the coaches that that taught me that was able to be able to face up and be able to uh, d- deliver something they got 100% good feedback from from these guys. I taught Club Chimera Martial Arts from as a club, um, as an actual club itself. Um, don't make confusion between the double B in my name and a club club, <laughs> if you like. I tried to do that from 2004 to 2014, and I didn't do a very good job of that at all because this time I wasn't going to run it like the kickboxing classes I was doing before, which were incredibly commercialized. This time I wanted to run things my way. Um, I wanted to teach a cross-training system, but again, you know, I don't think I had the money to invest in it. I don't think, um, again, it was, I was trying to sell something that not a lot of people really understood, uh, you know, and, and again, even to this day, when, I mean, if you've read my book, Brian, a lot of the stuff that I teach to children, um, a lot of that is often considered to be controversial by a lot of martial arts instructors. And I mean controversial, I mean, as in, they don't think it's going to make them a lot of money. I don't think it's going to get a lot of pupils through the door. Right. It's, it's often very hard lessons. It's very, it's very. Uh, I don't want to say they're being dishonest but, but, um, by default, but it is a brutally honest um, approach to teaching children self-protection. In, in essence, I wanted to transfer the sort of information that the likes of Jeff Thompson and Mo Teague had taught me about uh, self-protection and be able to um, uh, transfer that to children. I want. I thought. I believe that children should have access to skills that actually are going to help them in the real world. And that's that in 2004, where I did that with the club. 2014, I stopped teaching the club. Um, I talked to both adults and, and children. I'd had a great time teaching. I had some brilliant students and some of them that still keep in contact to this day. But uh, it wasn't for me. And, and I became a uh, personal trainer in martial arts. So now I teach a bespoke service in, in martial arts and self-protection. Uh, and, uh, and and I've been doing that since um, before 2014. Okay. But uh, from from 2014, that's been, been my my main thing. And for the last couple of years, it's it's now um, it's now my main job. That's why I do. I, I write and I teach, which is my two twin loves. Okay. So then, think thinking back to the the very first time you taught, you know, whether it was in one on one or whether it was a group class, what whatever age. Think about that, and to now, what do you think has changed the most about your teaching style? You said you've gone through a lot of different ways. You taught it and went from a club now you're doing more of a personal one-on-one type thing what do you think's changed the most well the biggest thing i mean again i could i could make my thinking go all the way back to i mean i've gone through if you like three or four phases of of teaching so i can i can see that i mean when i was doing you know before i was um when I was 16, um, I, I was asked to, you know, run a class, you know, and on a regular basis. Um, it was just um, 
but I'd often, you know, do the warm up and be given because I was getting ready for, you know, for my black belt, if you like. So, so I, I had some experience there. Then that was pretty much just transferring the information what I was being given. So Dan itself was a very sort of insist- assistant instructor sort of mentality, if you like. So I was just regurgitating what I've been taught and I was transferring that to students. So that's certainly not my way. Um, I couldn't be more further removed from what I do to this day. When I taught kickboxing, um, again, I did put a lot of my, myself in it. And initially, I was shown this is the way that we teach things, if you like. So I kind of had to follow a, a bit of a system. But over a period of time, I began to start to introduce new things in. But it was all very technique-based teaching, shall we say, mm-hmm. uh, which um, wasn't necessarily the, the, to the highest standard of technical teaching, given uh, the type of boss that I was working for at the time, he was more interested in making sure you're getting the, you know, those people through the door and they were buying the kit and they were going to the gradings as far as he was concerned. Right. Uh, but I had a love for teaching, so I've, I tried to put as much of myself into that. But I can't say the technical uh, standards were, were amazing. I mean, everyone got a good workout. That's something I'll stand by, whatever happened within those classes. I feel like I did my dirt during that period. Mm-hmm. And I feel a bit like a, a reformed. I feel like I, I'm a now a reformed, you know, non-smoker, if you like, in that sort of mentality. <laughs> as in, nice. I kind of almost overcompensate by the way that I that I teach, you know, the, my, okay. my, uh, my uh, reactions to, uh, you know, nowadays I'm very sort of anti-hierarchy. I'm very... Um, uh, you know, I like, when I say anti-hierarchy, I, I, I like as flat a hierarchy as I possibly can. And I try not to describe the people who, uh, who, you know, who pay me to teach them as my students. I like to think of them as people who train with me. Um, I like to try to take a more of a coaching approach. What I did when I ran my own school was uh, I brought in a syllabus that didn't have any techniques. And now that does sound very 60s, very, very kind of, um, you know, uh, Bruce Lee counterculture, if you like. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there's a wonderful quote, isn't there, where Dan Inosanto says of Bruce Lee um, that somebody said, um, uh, is, is it true that Jeet Kune Do has no, um, has no techniques? And he said, that was the 60s. Everyone used to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of, it, it, it's, so, so I do sound a bit like that. But I actually, when I wrote my syllabus, I explicitly didn't put anything that was a technique. I just wanted activities. I wanted, I wanted a transparent system, if you like, so that when people went for their grading, I could bring in people who had good backgrounds, who had validated backgrounds in uh, dealing with either real life violence um, or they were, you know, they had a very good pedigree in pragmatic martial arts, if you like. And when they graded my students, um, they didn't need to see a system. They just needed to see that people could, you know, that people were um, uh, transparently delivering an efficient means for self-protection you know so they could see that it's quite simple you know you, you, you know they that they could take people down or they couldn't take people down you know they they could work through pressure testing or they couldn't work through pressure testing they could hit hard or they couldn't hit hard you know very and when it came to asking them questions during the Q&A they would come back with with very common sense answers to self-protection questions so it was the idea was to have to create a very transparent system that could keep progressing and that way I could introduce new concepts into the lessons and again of course it was it became very much uh you know a, a melting pool of um uh, you know of information i was i'd be training away at other places and i'd be bringing that information to my classes and and developing things when i came to teaching private lessons I, i'd come to the conclusion with there were certain things that i'd learned as a as a nomadic martial artist as a martial artist that was training from place to place because often i would go and train at clubs but because i wasn't living locally to those clubs i'd have to go back home and train and work on my own training and maybe i wouldn't go to as many lessons as a lot of the regulars there and then i'd have to go back 
back to the class and try and be able to catch up. So I started working out methods that would enable me to do that. And one of them was to keep looking for principles, looking whenever a technique was being taught, I was looking for what is what is the main principle here that uh, is being taught. And then we can start looking at uh, the periphery. Then we can start looking at the, the attractive part that everyone else is looking at. You know, that everyone else sees immediately. So the best way to, I suppose, an example of that would be when someone thinks of a punch, the first thing everyone thinks of is a fist, mm-hmm. right? You know, that's, yeah. that's the image of a punch. If someone said to you, draw a punch or draw, draw what represents a punch, I'd say majority of people are going to draw a fist, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. Which you and I know is probably the least important part of a punch. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, it is absolutely the least important. To the point where the likes of Jeff Thompson, the likes of a, a lot of great fighters, can throw punches with non-textbook fists, should we say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen punches thrown with full force with no visible damaging results uh, where uh, the hand is is held in a way that um, pretty much like what you'd see in a boxing glove. You put boxing gloves on, you don't make fists. Right. Um, you know, because they, they prevent you from making fists. But I've seen, you know, again, and, and I've punched like this as well and, and others have as uh, too. And I've got small hands. So, you know, you know, I can punch with some force with my fists, not, not, you know, without making a classically made fist. Because we know that the most important parts here is the alignment behind it. And obviously the power comes from driving up from the feet, mm-hmm. uh, through the legs, through the hips. Um, you know, I used to say like, you know, when people are hitting, when you're doing a lot of impact training, should we say, uh, and, and um, for, for a long period of time, you know you're doing it wrong if your arm and your shoulder are aching, um, if, you're, if you're doing it for power. And you right. know you're doing it right when your obliques start to ache. And you know you're really doing it right when your legs are aching and you know you've got it oh, pretty it's close to the best that you can get it when your your toes start to ache. You know, this is as we know. So we know that's all the things that are behind it. It's the same thing as like I say, when we get to grappling applications, how so much of it is down to the hips. You know, mm-hmm. nowadays when I'm when I'm drilling people on the ground, I'm, I'm making them get this hips understanding the importance of the hips all the time so they get that and then they get the positioning and, and again all the time in martial arts i find that you know if you get the position right if the position of anything whether it's grappling striking whether it's within the context of self-protection even if you want to talk about it from a soft skills perspective if you get your positioning right then the techniques write themselves so this this is you know became very much my sort of cross-training approach actually as a teacher for my personal training for my private lessons I went down a bes- the bespoke route. This this was my idea. It was like, I was going to say to people, I'm not going to teach you. I can teach you martial arts cross-training. I can teach you self-protection. Uh, they're, they're like my two areas. Uh, within that, there'll be other things that we can we can branch off into. So we can work within a certain discipline. So the idea is, is that rather than saying to somebody, this is my system, this is my style, and it's got everything you need. You know, so typical person comes off the street, we can go straight to children if you like, but adults, you know, adults the same. Um, but, you know, the, they come in, they go, you know, why, why do you want to do martial arts? Well, I'm getting beaten up in the playground. You know, this is, this is what's happening, you know. So I need something to protect myself with. Okay, okay, well, come join our, our class. And, and, and so immediately, you know, they're going in there, they're going to, doing all this physical stuff. And the next thing, they, they're training for a competition or they're training for their grading or they're training for all these other sort of areas. And they're going, but, but what I want is something that's going to help prevent me from getting beaten up in the playground. And this is happening now. This is an emergency. It's not something I'm, I'm not planning for this. It's not, I'm not thinking that I, I'm going to be getting beaten up in the playground about three years time. So do you think you know, I'll be ready to handle that situation? Now? No, 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 but you've got to go through this. You've got to handle this. And you get all these things where a lot of martial arts, and again, a lot of martial arts teachers, I feel, get a, 
uh, pressure they either put on themselves or others have put on them, where they're, they're expected to be able to deliver so much uh, when you know their, their strength is maybe delivering a certain area or a certain particular service. And these other elements might be great as well. And they might be able to offer them, but they're kind of more secondary or they're kind of more, um, or, or they might be byproducts. I mean, I don't want to go into the byproduct myth. That's something else <laughs> in one of my other books, but, but, uh, but, but, if you, but you know what I mean. So my view was like, well, someone comes to me and someone goes, well, what, why do you want to do this? Do you want to do martial arts? Let's get to the root of why you want to do this. And once I can hear somebody tells me what they want, then I can go, okay, well, this is going to be the course for you. So at least then we're both on the same page. So you're booking me, you're, you're my client, and, and you're booking me to provide you with um, something that's going to help you best achieve this particular thing. Maybe you want fitness. Maybe you just come say, look, look, I or maybe just go, look, look, and I just want to do a martial art. I'm not, I'm not bothered about self-protection point of view. I don't want to compete. Um, but I like, the, I, I like the aesthetic of a martial art. I like the idea of doing that. Or I like that because maybe somebody wants it just because it's their form of exercise they go okay well that's cool okay we can do a boxing course we can do a a, a kickboxing course we can do a grappling course of course you know depending on what what you want to do um so that that's one of the ways that um i do that another thing of my teaching that that's come out of something on the self-protection side of things is to devise activities that quarry techniques you know um everybody knows how to fight to a certain degree there's it's in our dna you know with it's you know this has been passed on through generations and generations it's in our instincts uh what tends to happen is social conditioning overrides a lot of that right you know so we you know that kind of stuff can get shut off and but it's in us so it's good to devise certain games and then use those games and activities certainly with children we find this to what i call quarrying techniques so you start finding, they start finding out for themselves things that are going to work. And then you can take that and then you can apply the knowledge and skill from a, a martial arts system to better sculpt those techniques. That's another approach that I do. And that, I do that more within the self-protection field. When it comes to the actual martial arts field, it, it's a little bit more sort of, it's a bit more structured. It's a bit more, okay, well, we're going to do, you know, boxing, right? Okay, well, these are restrictions. This is what we've got to work within. And this is how we're going to develop. And, and, and when I say restrictions, Restrictions are a wonderful thing. Restrictions, I believe, not only breed creativity, but they're the things that that enable us to, um, you know, to get stronger. You know, after you know, restrictions are what they're resistance, aren't they? So, uh, you know, we, we can only get stronger through those through those areas. But, um, but yeah, so that's kind of all that sort of approach. But I like different teaching approaches as well. I mean, I had one client who came to me and he really, really wanted more of an instructor approach, and I was happy to turn over to that and I was to say, well, okay, well, I'll, it's not my preferred way, but mm-hmm. I can still instruct you if you like on this sort of grounds and um uh but still i'm going to still work hard to bring the individual out out in you in, in whatever you do you know boxing as you as you, is a classic example you know if you look at boxing there's different styles of boxers and they're often connected to their personalities to their attributes and so on we can go off on that so yeah so that's that you know so as far as my coaching that's how i feel like it's involved i've involved evolved from a a very much a on receive and transmit to receivers approach instructing to a more coaching guide approach. Great answer. Now you mentioned, you know, between the training and then also writing is your other full-time job. So we already talked about your first book. Talk about your first martial arts book. And, and I definitely want to get to the new one, but kind of what started your <laughs> your journey of writing martial arts books? What was that first one about? Okay. Um, the first one was Mordred's Victory okay. um, and Other Martial Mutterings. That's the, that's, that's the title. And it was um, a collection of, of articles, that of, of essays, really, that I wrote for uh, the martial arts magazine that um, that I've been writing for from, from two. 2004 to about 2010 2011 
Yeah, and um, it was all the, it was none of the interviews. It, it, it was it was no interviews. It was no reviews. It was purely the essays, the stuff that I really, really wanted to, you know, my own expressions. And that's and the title of the book comes from that. The more the Mordred's victory part comes from that. Mordred's victory, by the way, was just um, an essay I wrote about uh, personality, uh, fighter personalities, and particularly the what we what some people would um might call a person who isn't a natural but they've got tenacity you know so uh and how they could be a nightmare for a person who is what you might typically call a natural so it's a little bit a bit of a sort of um i don't know um you know in, in boxing terms i suppose it, it's it's it, again this the sort of joe frazier muhammad ali thing I mean, okay. not to say that joe frazier had some good technical ability but he used very much what i'd say a mordred's approach as in you know he just kept coming forward and he took ridiculous amount of punishment of course and that in order to to achieve his goals and whereas muhammad ali was what you might typically call a, na- a natural you know he, he had an he used to box with a way that just seemed to be he, he was born doing it you know that i mean obviously i appreciate the training and things that that went into that but yeah that was kind of like that sort of thing and i use other examples of, of it and also how this approach would go and that and that was just one of the essays but was divided up into different sections but it covered the period that i was running a club so it's the, so the essay started in 2000 uh not, not in strict chronological order but uh the essays cover the span of 2004 to 2014 okay. and and I restricted it to that any essays I wrote after that I didn't I didn't put in the book and it was that period because I felt that it kind of reflected as well my my thinking then as well uh you know I did my best I can to obviously I you know obviously I've done lots of re-edits and I've had you know, good editors come on board and, and help me improve it and refine it. And obviously I'm trying to improve my writing all the time. So those elements came in there, but I did my best I could to reserve the opinions I had then. And I'm not to say that the opinions have, have changed that dramatically, but they have changed in, in, in certain areas. And uh, again, there's a section on there. Yeah, this uh, can I've got a copy here. Just, just remind oh, okay. me. Uh, yeah, yeah it's divided up into four sections. There's the Marshall Mutterings, which is the first section, which is quite a miscellaneous collection of, of essays to, to start off with. Uh, that then, uh, which, which starts with um, an essay on martial academia, which is then talking about uh, martial artists who are, I feel um, lean too much into the academic and away from the experience to the point where we've we end up with a lot of martial artists who who kind of get lost in their own stylisms and, and art and get further removed from what its original purpose was or what its objectives were, almost to the point where they're almost snobbish about it, if you get what I mean. So it was a, it was a piece called Martial Academia at the time. Um, and so we talk about differing opinions. Yeah, now I I believe that we, we, we probably need more academia to a certain degree, um, whilst not throwing out that really important experience angle. Um, you know, I feel there's a lot we can learn from critical thinking, for example. Uh, you know, it's very, very crucial. It's one of my uh, main uh, supports of the way I coach and teach. Um, you know, I, I believe in a um, clarification, scepticism, individuality uh, approach. So scepticism is critical thinking. And uh, and I think that, again, so, so it is important to have academia in there as well. But anyway, that's my first piece there was kind of talking about the snobs, if you like, yeah. in martial okay. academia. And then the last piece of, of the martial muttering section was mixed martial arts and the quest for integrity. So that was a bit of a defense about mixed martial arts in, in, in many respects, um, where it's, it, it was getting a, a such a, a reputation for being just a thuggish uh, blood sport, 
that um, a, a lot of martial art, again, I suppose it was about snobbery again. Maybe that's a, maybe I've got a circus chip on my shoulder there. <laughs> circus has always had this battle with um, uh, high art, shall we say, okay. um, since its inception. So maybe, maybe something that's coming in subconsciously, if you like. Uh, but Mixed Martial Arts and the Quest for Integrity talks about, uh, you know, um, how mixed martial artists, you know, are off by definition, they have a, a huge amount of discipline. They have a, a huge amount of skill um, because they have to in order to make up the, the, the composite parts of, of their particular sport plus the, the sport itself. But also it's the, the desire that was always at the beginning of mixed martial arts to, to, to find something that is more combatively real mm-hmm. uh, like in martial arts so that was kind of my thing but it also talks about you know the, the problems as well in mixed martial arts it's not a love letter to mixed martial arts by any stretch of the imagination but it's but but it is a defense against a lot of the unfair criticism i felt at the time I was put in there the next section is my self-protection piece so um you know i start that off with what should be and what is long-term and short-term self-protection so i make a distinction between what i call long-term self-protection and short-term and i always think of short-term self-protection is the reality of what is so it's like dealing with the things that we know are most likely to happen and dealing with um and this can be everything right down to the way that you know people act you know because i feel like a lot of people often get involved with self-protection either when they're pushing back against self-protection or they're trying to teach their particular brand they reinvent violence or they you know they talk about how people shouldn't be you know there's almost like this this um and this desire to be able to change people and you know that's great was what i call long-term self-protection i genuinely believe that you know we could invest more into making our society safer i definitely think we need to be doing that on the whole when we're not you know training ourselves and that but also there needs to be a distinction between that and what i call the short-term self-protection that's the beginning of that and it kind of just goes through all my the tenants that i use um pretty much would come up in my when parents aren't around book actually that's the uh, uh respect awareness um courage discipline open mind and then finally there's a bit called uh, so is your self-defense training any good as part of that section and what that stands when self-defense by, by my, when i talk about self-defense this is the hard skills part of it is your self-defense any good right. because a lot of people would come to me and i'm sure you get this as well brian when you get individuals who ask you what's best for self-defense or or is this good for self-defense yep. and you know you often get that question don't you and it's a, yes. it's not they, they want a quick answer they always want this you know there's this problem solution society i think that's been been a part of martial arts since the first time it was promoted to civilians i honestly do i see you know historical records of that you know we go back to the the, the victorian era if you like of barton Wright. if you talk about um the chinese schools of retired soldiers and bodyguards and um you know teaching it to people outside the family you know there, there's this um problem solution you know this is the answer to this here's here's a few tricks here's here's your here's your martial arts answer to this so rather than my view is like well you know potentially if you've got a switched on teacher with good experience and, and has got a good approach to teaching it could be any art that's being taught here and it could be and you and you could be t- teaching a good um self-defense good self-defense hard skills and i kind of like my quick way to, to answer that is to say yeah does it teach preemption is it proactive um, and is it pressure tested? If those three are met, then the self-defense, that is the hard skills part of it. I'm not talking about the more important soft skills, which I emphasize is very important, the personal security part of it. But in the hard skills part of it, I think they are, they're three very hard, fast rules of doing it. So if you, if your particular system, your particular class has those three in place, then, you know, it's, 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 a, it's going to be pretty decent 
form of uh, of self-defense training then I, then I have my reality training for children so these are the first articles and essays that i wrote in magazines for teaching children realistic self-protection okay. and again as i said there was a degree of controversy on that just because of the hard lessons that i taught on right. that um and it finishes with that section finishes with um reality training for children 21st century martial arts and that talks about adults and children training together for more realistic self-protection as well again which again something i also found was a problem um, within our subculture if you like so you're either having adults and children training together but in something that is not practical at all or you've got adults and children being strictly separated if they were going to do anything that was going to be practical and i i believe there is a you know there's a degree of crossover that that can be explored there that in fact you know given that children for their self-protection training a very real threat to them is likely to be an adult you know, if we're going right. to be dealing with that subject. So that's the reason why that's in there. And the final part was uh, training fit for purpose. So that was looking at what I would call, I don't want to say the word uh, functional fitness because that tends to have a bad reputation these days. But should we say specific training for martial arts? I have my hierarchy of training, which was inspired by uh, a message I saw on the internet where somebody was asking, look, I've got an hour a day to train what should I do? And the majority of answers were coming back. 50 minutes of doing exercises, you know, whether they were calisthenics or or uh, or any other type of training, and then about 10 minutes of technical work. And I was thinking, this person is, wants to train in martial arts, and you're telling them <laughs> they've got an hour to do it. So yeah. I just feel there's you know there's more energy efficient ways to do it. And and, and you often see it. it's like you know the you know, typical class people warm up in a typical martial arts class they get them to run around the hall you know and you're thinking my goodness so when you isn't it funny when i go to play you know i don't play tennis but it, but it, but it, but if um, if someone went to go play tennis i don't see many of them running around the court they seem to be picking up a racket and start moving with that racket early on they start warming up in that way and i thought i wonder if running clubs warm up with martial arts techniques you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know this is kind of it and since when was press ups a less strenuous on your body during the warm up than punching you know so things like that was like this is bizarre you know and when people pay money to go to a martial arts class you know even if they come from a very from that perspective you know you think to yourself well they're coming here to learn the martial arts the, the other stuff yeah it's great it's important i think absolutely valid i think anybody who trains in any sort of physical activity and wants to be good at it should have a good foundational knowledge on um of on good calisthenics should understand resistance training cardiovascular training but these are stuff that should be really pretty much done outside the lesson the lesson there's more than there's not enough time in the lesson normally to, to, in order to impart the actual martial knowledge or the or the uh, self-protection knowledge that's being provided without them having to then suddenly get a gym session taking up um, precious time. So, yeah, and that also had things like um, various different ideas that I had in there, like uh, solo training, as I talked about, and, uh, and, and also getting over injuries. It finishes with a piece called That Which Does Not Kill Us, a martial arts and media ramble. So I start talking about, you know, connections in pop culture, about getting over issues um both mentally physically you know o- overcoming the, the injury factor um how, how we can you know get stronger through things that we do you know injuries that we might encounter uh the reality of facing up to those kind of things and also obviously you know the, me- the mental issues as well so that was my first book my next book was wrong foo which is a collection of all my um, critical thinking martial arts essays i won't go through the whole list on those because i okay. appreciate your time is precious brian <laughs> oh, no. but it's, it's a much shorter book anyway okay. um but it was kind of like i've been dying to write bullshit to in the fight to make martial arts work which is um at the moment it's five volumes all in various stages of being finished and it's been a work in progress since at least 
well, probably since at least I start, actually started running my club, even, even, um, wow. uh, and, and it just, just, um, well, I probably actually started actually writing the, the proper piece in about 2006. It's gone through various different incarnations. It's always been on the back burner. It's the one that my wife's always wanted me to get out there. So I got wrong through out there to sort of test the water, if you like. Um, so wrong through is a bit of a prequel to that, if, if you like. And it's going to look back at the history of, of, if you like, martial artists who, uh, buck the trend in order to try and preserve the pragmatism of their particular system or style. So okay. you'll see a, a reoccurring theme through a lot of my training where I've kind of, you know, come from a show business background, even though I'm a fantasist and a romantic at heart and, uh, and I've kind of pursued that thing. There's also this sort of counter need to teach pragmatism, to teach, right. um, uh, you know, to teach honesty. And then that, and then obviously in the fourth book is uh, when parents aren't around. Um, Talk a little bit about that one. So what, what kind of led to that? What made you want to want to write that book? I would say a drink in a bar in Disneyland, Paris. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're in 2000, December, 2007. And uh, yeah, a lot of people have heard, have heard the other podcast will have heard about this one, but it, it's, it's 2007. I, the two documentaries that, that you, you may kindly mentioned uh, cross training in the martial arts parts one and two, they've been released. Um, they were successful. They were the most successful uh, martial arts DVD actually for Summersdale, I believe at that particular time. And um, so I was well in their good books and they came over with me and several other selected martial arts teachers to be part of a martial arts festival that was going to be held in Disneyland Paris um that there had already been one i think um over in uh, over in florida at one point and so they wanted to try and replicate that it wasn't actually disney who were the ones behind it it was a travel agent company and one of the travel agents happened to be an instructor under motique and he was a great guy, and uh, and he flew me over there um, for this meeting over in Disneyland Paris. I tell you, it was the best business meeting I've ever been in my life. Uh, we all turned up in Disneyland Paris and had free tickets to all the theme parks and nice. and, and all the food, all, all yeah, all, hotels obviously paid for, um, all our meals paid for. It was great. Sadly. The festival did not really amount to much. I mean, they had Rich Bastillo. I was teaching. Um, he was teaching on the same circuit as mm -hmm. me. Um, he was one of Motique's um, teachers as well. Mo, Mo taught there too. Um, but um, there was a lot, a lot of problems that they had, unfortunately, with with the festival, with the bringing together of the ideas. But the initial meeting, oh, that was wonderful. So we we had a great time. We you know we went to these meetings and you know people were trying to bash out an idea of what this festival was going to look like, what they wanted it to be about. I was hanging there most of the time wondering why I was there. I mean, I, <laughs> that often, I often used to turn up at martial arts meetings with when people wanted to get big projects going. I have to say, I, I, when it came to me, it was kind of like, I don't know why I'm really here. <laughs> I've done a few interviews, you know, I've trained with a few people. I've got my own kind of thing I'm trying to create here, but I'm not entirely sure. I don't run a big school. I run, you know, I run a tiny club, you know, that that's in rented halls. You know, I've trained with some great people and I've trained with some really, really great people and I've written about it, you know, and that was kind of it. So I can't, I don't know if I'm, people saw me as a sort of, you know, in a journalistic thing. I, I never really got the answer to it, but there were, but I was very grateful for it. I'm very grateful for the people who, who believed in me, whatever they believed they wanted me to do. But I ended up turning up at these places and, and it, but anyway, when I was there, um, my articles, the articles I mentioned in the Mordred's Victory, 
um, under the children's self-protection section. They've been published in, in the magazines and um, and uh, Summersdale was talking to me, Summersdale, the production company, and obviously a publishing company as well. And uh, the guy who, who ran the production company side of it said, well, why don't you write a book? You know, when you've done the articles, what, why not write a book? So it was his idea. And I said, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And he said, you know, this is your word count. And um, yeah, yeah, you know, get a copy over to me. So by, you know, a certain time, whatever it was. Now, unfortunately, he left the company. He got a better option. So he left the company and kind of put me back to square one. You know, Summersdale seemed a little bit kind of, um, I mean, they were great to me with, with the DVDs. But I don't think they were really in the loop about this whole whole idea. And uh, there was no contract written. And I'd written the book. Um, and again, I had some great support of different people. Obviously, Jeff Thompson gave me good support. A guy called Robert um, Higgs gave me some great support. He's, he wrote a couple of books on anti-bullying that have been very successful um, and, and, and runs a brilliant anti-bullying program. And, you know, pair of us, you know, did a couple of seminars for schools together as well. And he was really supportive as well. But I had real trouble hawking the book around. And, and uh, for various different reasons. And, and it really just stayed in the back burner. So that book was was written probably before 2007 was out. You know, so 2008, my first book comes out, The Legend of Salt and Sauce, uh, to a totally different audience. You know, that was all circus, nothing to do with martial arts. And But this other book is in is in the background along with Bullshitsu. And I thought that's what's going to happen. It's, it's just going to be the same as Bullshitsu. So I try to hold around. You know, very hard to get an agent, very hard to get a publisher. I was going through all the, you know, that side of it. So um uh, and so I kept getting putting on the back burner until I got with Excellence Publishing and they believed in me. So um, Excellence Publishing were, uh, but Excellence Publishing only did ebooks and they published Mordred's Victory and they published Wrong Fu and they said, yeah, well, we'll publish when parents aren't around. So they published all those books. So that was, again, with a traditional publishing company. Aardvark Publishing was a friend of the family, um, but uh, it did quite well, the Song Source book. The others did fine, and through excellence publishing, again, it was still traditional publishing, but then they decided to go their own route where they were only going to publish the guy who ran it. He just wanted to um, publish his own work rather than publishing everyone else's, I think, and uh, just went a different business route. He was incredibly supportive and great, and obviously gave me all my rights back from my books. Nice. So I decided to take advantage of Amazon. You know, that was my view. Mm-hmm. Next to it was like, I'm going to go, you know, it's a niche publishing. And to, I just did finally what Jeff Thompson had advised me all those years ago. He said, um, it's great to go have some works uh, under your belt that are traditionally published. I mean, I'm very happy that my first book was a non-martial arts book because I didn't want to be seen as being a martial artist that happened to write. I wanted to be seen as a as a writer and a martial artist. The fact that I could get a book out there that went into three editions, uh, you know, that was a non-martial arts book, that meant a lot to me. Excellence Publishing had, you know, all, all those other, they published it traditionally as well. Um, I didn't have to pay for any of that. So, but now um, with the rights back, I went, okay, with how far Amazon has come forward with all this, with the eBooks, with the print, and I can finally get these books out in a printed format. So I went down that. And again, even though it's, it's print on demand, so that's you know, right. that's a great great service. I think I think it works great. I think for I mean Jeff had said to me, you know, it's, it's always going to be a niche thing, so therefore you make more money by doing that. And he went, you know, once you've done it traditionally, it's proven that you people want to buy your stuff, and then but then do it if you can do it yourself because um, it's always going to going to work out better for you, and you obviously you've got more control too, you know. So that's um, you know that's the way it's gone, and uh, and and that's um, say that's, that's the last of. Of the books, the next books that will come out will be the first, will be brand new books um, in new editions. So this is an updated edition. This was released in 2017. And then this year I re-released it and it was it's virtually rewritten, to be honest. It's changed a lot since 2017 okay. to uh, the 2023, yeah. All right. So talk a little bit about the podcast, kind of what, what led to that idea and just what has that uh, experience and journey been like? 
Okay, so I'm a podcasting uh, fan. You know, I, I love podcasts. As soon as I got a device that I could listen to podcasts on, um, I was away and I was downloading ridiculous amounts. And that comes from my love of audiobooks. I, I love reading anyway. I've obviously, because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a writer, I'm a, obviously I should be a good re- I should be a big reader. But I was listening to audiobooks before I could read. So, so you know, and it was I was having people tell me stories. Um, on the circus, a lot of the time on uh, pull down days, that's days when the circus moved, my mum couldn't always read me um, bedtime stories and stuff like that. So she got me probably one of my favourite toys, and that was a tape recorder and a you know, little nice. tape, little cassette recorder. And you know, and she'd play these tapes. Great thing about that is that we'd often record our own audiobooks as well. But that got me into the whole audiobook thing, and I kind of I grew up with all the things like the Marshall Cavendish Storyteller and. A lot of books where you know like when they used to in the 80s they used, they used to have the cassettes and the books you know you'd get the cassette and you'd read along to the book listening to the cassette and yep. all that sort of stuff as well so used to have all that stuff going on there so yeah so the podcast idea you know so again there's a natural extension as soon as i found out there was all these amazing free audio content out there through podcasts uh that was great that means i didn't have to hang around on a radio station listening to um you know whatever whatever is in the charts at the time for ages or loads of programs i'm not interested in or adverts or all these sort of things you could just go straight into i mean obviously podcasts have adverts of course they do but you know what i mean you, yeah. you're, you're not on a schedule you're not on a schedule so to speak so you know you could just absolutely so that's what i've got now and um of course i've you know to form i've got loads and loads of podcast shows on my on my list so listening to that and uh i have to give uh credit to ian abernethy it's his yep. podcast it was ian and again i think quite a few people who run podcasts can have to give their credit to ian because ian encouraged me to do a podcast just like uh um he, he did several other people so you know i loved his show um ian was a good friend of mine and still is to this day. Um, been hugely supportive of my work, um, and uh, I'm very, very respectful of, of what he's done. It's funny actually because Ian and I, Ian comes very much a traditionalist, uh, whereas I would be seen as very eclectic and very much, our, um, you know, the opposite to a tradition, should we say? But it's probably as a martial arts teacher, he's the one who I share the, the most similar interests and the most similar approaches to. You know, and in some in some ways, some of the stuff I do, um, even though I'd like to say, you know. It's mine, you know. It's my, it's my kind of thing. It's my um, uh, signature in, in, in some respects. Um, nothing under the sun is um, is new except for the very old. And uh, I feel that it, you know, sometimes it's you know, a lot of the time I teach Ian stuff without the kata. <laughs> okay. You know, so we're so we're really really close in that in that respect. So yeah, and um, we we have huge conversations on the phone. I'm sure you can't imagine that, Brian. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm not not a very talkative person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so Ian and I, you know, we we you know we we chat away, and uh, and and he he's great for so many people. Again, have been motivated by him, and I love his show. I love his work. I mean, he Ian even references uh, one of my essays on his audio book. Uh, it's a podcast audio book that people can get for free called um, uh, The Marshall. Uh, I think it's called The Martial Arts Matrix um, uh, or The Training Matrix, something along those lines. Um, it's, it's really, really good. And in, in that, he mentions my byproduct myth, uh, a reference obviously that's in the essay, it's in Mordred's Victory. I hadn't written the essay and he'd referenced it like as if it existed. <laughs> so it was a really weird time travel moment there you know, where I had to go, I've got to write this now because <laughs> he's actually talking about it, uh, about something that actually hasn't been written. So I had to write that piece. So I, can, I remember that very well. Anyway, so Ian, Ian did a great podcast. I love podcasts. Um, I love listening to 
wide range of different topics on podcasts. So I went, I'm going to do my own. So just like, I suppose in many ways, it's the adult me doing the same as the child me, just as the child me was being told stories and felt a need to reciprocate with my own stories. Child me was listening to all these podcasts going, oh, I-, I want to join in, I want to join in, I want to have a go, you know, yes. and now I-, I want to do, you know, I want to get that out. And it was just a, a really, really, um, and again, it's another form of writing, isn't it? It's another mm-hmm. quick way to writing rather than having to write a whole book, rather than having to write an article for a magazine. I could get straight out there. And my podcast is my most self-indulgent medium, I would say. Um, you know, I've got my YouTube channel. Um, I've got, obviously, my, my other social media out there that I, that I use. And I've got my blog. Um, I write my blog. I write up every single lesson I teach, which I put on my blog. So oh, nice. every lesson I've taught right from the very first day I ran a, a class in 2004, there's a write-up of that. It began as an extension of my own uh, training journal, you know, because I used to keep a training journal from about 2003. And what I did is I start writing. When I start teaching my first classes, I thought, well, I'll write those lessons up. And then the next thing I went, well, I can blog, can't I? Because I can put those lessons on the blog. So that's what happened. So I've, so there's, you know, anyone who goes on my website will see this huge back catalog of, um, of articles in my, on, on my blog. And they'll see, um, under the, you know, the diaries, which is the most, by far, um, the, the most, en- um, entries and anything else that's on there. And um, so that's that. That's the, 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 you know, that's, the, that's my blog. So my blog is all about strictly about training, and there's a few reflective essays, um, but they're they're very much within the restrictions of, uh, of of certain areas in martial arts and techniques and things like that, um, and approaches to training and coaching and things like that. Then you've got like my YouTube channel, which again, most of, most of that tends to be very much like train along videos, so people can do their own. Um, you know, going through COVID, um, you know, I produced about three train along videos uh, for people on on the YouTube channel, and there's things like um, you know clips from my lessons as well with my clients and and things like that so that that, all that's all on my on on my youtube channel so but the podcast i reserve that for how self-indulgent i can be so (laughs) so this you know i've done an april fool's one for example where i where i invent a circus martial art you know (laughs) where it's just it's just uh uh, I had great fun with that, meshing the reality and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's faction, if you like. And uh, and I had really, really good fun. And it's also a bit of a satire, if you know what I mean, about martial arts that, mm-hmm. that invent their own uh, histories. You know, a lot of martial, you know, as we know, again, that's very much a bullshit zoo subject. But I've done things like I've been able to bring in true crime, you know, criminology, being able to use. Because, you know, that's, you know, that's a view of mine. You know, why, you know, when, when you're teaching self-protection, surely shouldn't you have an eye on real life case studies i mean who, who you're looking at who you mm-hmm. who are you teaching people to, to protect themselves against well they're against life's real predators they're not defending themselves against feudal era samurai or you know or uh, uh, um, you know other martial artists we're, we're defending against the you know and as the people in the self-protection world will, will often preach and talk about, you're talking about, you know, thugs, robbers, rapists, various, you know, elements of society that we know that will target people and the realities of violence. But often they don't go back into the background, the psychology, the stories that, that involve these different individuals. And I often think they often provide really important case studies. I mean, I use a true story of a, of a German serial killer to explain 
the importance of understanding the double tap you know the you know the famous samurai quote of mm-hmm. you know once the battle is over make sure your, your helmet straps are tight you know you, sorry tighten your helmet straps you know once the battle is over um you know the importance of double tap there, there was a there's a case study of an incident with a, the famous german serial killer uh, infamous german, german serial killer rather where uh, somebody thought they'd escaped a potential attack from one person only then to be targeted by the actual serial killer um, himself wow. so and i use that as an aftermath story um i, I use the crimes of burke and hare to dis- to discuss how alcohol is weaponized in society um you know both as a method to motivate predators you know as a, but also obviously as a, as a method to subdue their targets their victims so and again that that that, that proved to be a popular podcast so again th- you know there was that but also i wrote i wrote a piece last year I, I came straight out with it and i wrote a piece called everything is martial arts <laughs> so i completely went okay i'm going to create as many you know connections i possibly can to the martial arts i can bring it all back to martial arts so rather than saying you know i don't i think it's unhealthy to say martial arts is everything but i think it's uh think there might be a case for saying that everything is martial arts so i can connect nearly anything to martial arts and and i did that with that podcast and by doing that that would, that's now completely blown open the door for me to explore you know so many different topics i can talk about you know classic literature and martial arts and um you know shakespeare in martial arts you know as i've already mentioned the true crime the true crime element but uh you know all these different areas of history that we can talk about and, and martial arts and obviously you know areas of science and psychology you know how it connects to martial arts and um you know, it's been uh, again, it's been very self-indulgent, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But I, but I, you know, I, I like to think it's it's got an audience. Nice. Well, I do have some some fun questions to kind of wrap it up. And this one, I'm really curious because you've you've trained with some amazing people and and had such an amazing career in martial arts. So, who were some three, four, five names you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Okay. Um, okay. So, so are these? Um, so, are we saying are these um, individuals? who um who i personally trained with or are they just from, from it's completely whole... up to you i mean i've had people put you know like you know bruce lee i've had people you know put you know the, the founder you know gichin funikoshi i mean it, it's people yeah. they personally train i've had people only put people from their style that they train in it's completely up to you it's your personal mount rushmore Oof. okay right okay <laughs> Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm going to go straight. Okay, so from from historical, so an historical person, um, let's go um, for Tang Yao. Okay, um, yes. from China, just because uh, pragmatist way ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. Um, someone preaching stuff um, in, in China that was just not being listened to by the vast majority. Really, really salmon swimming upstream there. You know, um, as far as martial arts concerned, and so much of what he said and uh, criticism he was making at the time is relevant to this day. So yeah, he's, he's got to have a place on there. I think um, whew, there are a few others. Uh, there, 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 are, there are a couple of others that are in there that, um, but I can't say I've read an, an awful lot of their material as such. Um, you know, they're, they're, un, they're unsung heroes, but I'm not going to put them on to, 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 to straight away because I don't know enough about them. But what they did was was really, really important. Okay. So they, maybe my also ran. I'll have to put Mo Teague on there because nice. you know, he, as far as my teaching and you know background goes, you know Mo has had such a, a huge impact on my active coaching. And with that, of course, I've got to put Jeff Thompson because you know if Jeff kind of gave me the ball, if you like, and whereas Mo Teague taught me how to run with it. So if I look at those two in tandem, you know they. You know, they're, they're definitely, so it's Tang Yao, 
uh, Jeff Thompson Motique is really, really inspirational martial artist. So that's two I know. Um, one, obviously, I don't know. One, one is not even connected to a style I even teach, but I just think that is... Uh, you know what, what he was saying is just was just so important and uh, and ahead of so many other people that was there so do i have two so i've got two spaces left haven't i it's, i've had people do as few as only two and as many as eight so it doesn't have to be yeah, oh really okay okay <laughs> we could go on for, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so no, I'm, I'm going to be very very strict on those ones in there okay i think i think they i think they are probably the ones that um i'd say probably had some of the the greatest influence on me and uh, kind of what I do, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'll, I think I'll just stay, stay with those three. For yeah, now. <laughs> those are some good ones. All right. So, in all your years of martial arts, is there one philosophy that you've learned or developed on your own that is just super important? You keep coming back to it. It's at the top of your list. Yeah, critical thinking, skepticism. So nice. it's going to be, um, yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. I mean, yeah, stoicism's. I don't like to to bond to any particular philosophy. So when I say skepticism, it is the broadest sense, and it's and it's. I will say it's small s skepticism with the English spelling. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but only the reason why I say that, and and, and that's not um, and that's not me being anti the American spelling, because if I was living in America, it would be the American spelling, um, but still with a small s. Um, I, I worry that the uh, the capital S skepticism is always spelt with a K. Uh, as more, even though it's got some fantastic people who are supportive of that, and you know, there's a lot of great stuff they say, it has become its own ideology, so to speak. And I'm very aware of ideologies. I mean, there's so many... I think philosophies work as portals for me, just like martial arts styles and systems. I won't be wedded to one completely. So, you know, so there's aspects of stoicism that I find is are really, really helpful. But that's not to say I'm not hopeful. It's not it's not that I don't believe in in hope. I did a whole podcast called uh, The Way of the White Moth. I talked about how hope can be an effective tool in, in self-protection and martial arts. So, um, you know, but there's elements, you know, stoicism, Marcus Aurelius, um, you know, is good in that respect. But um, but yeah, if I had to be really, really narrowed down, I, could do, I would be going, um, you know, come on, it's, it's Socrates um, at the root of it. But in essence, it's that sort of uh, science-based um, skepticism. But I demand a small s for it. It's, so therefore, it's not an ideology. <laughs> it's critical thinking. It's it's looking at things rationally. I think that I think when you have that, that helps govern everything else. Yeah. Nice. I like that. Great answer. All right. Do you now that you can't pick one of your own? Do you have a favorite martial arts book? Oh. <laughs> oh that no, no that yeah yeah that is one uh, and you said you like to read so <laughs> yeah yeah whew, yeah 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 that's uh that that is and if you really can't pick favorite. a favorite maybe do you have one where if someone else says hey which one would you recommend for you know i'm a beginner which maybe something like maybe you one you that you recommend a lot maybe it's not a favorite okay yeah yeah oh, but again again i'm very service okay i'm very service orientated so they'd have to say to me um, I just say, what do you want to read about? You know, so it's kind of it's kind of that 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 view. Okay, favorite favorite. Do you have a go to um, that you've read multiple multiple times? Yeah, 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 yeah. Good. Oof, uh, yeah, yeah. That's a that that is a that is a very. Uh, um, yeah. Um, maybe you know when we talk about. See here, one second. No problem. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, this seems very, very strange to say, but uh, Chinese martial arts training manuals. Really? So we're at Brian Kennedy and Elizabeth Gyo. Uh, Gyo. Um, okay. I'm going to have to say that that's the one I've probably gone back to the most. I don't train in any Chinese martial arts systems anymore. I did wushu for five years on mm-hmm. and off. 
But the essence of what's being put across here, the approach that they, they've taken to it is great. Watch My Back is a wonderful book on Jeff, Thompson, uh, Jeff Thompson's autobiography. I'll always promote that. Ian Abernethy's The Hidden Throws of um, Karate, Boxing, and sorry, not The Hidden Throws, The uh, Forgotten Throws of uh, Karate, uh, boxing and taekwondo is is an is an excellent little book as well. Um, but um, and I, I and I do like a lot of Robert W. Smith stuff as well. So yeah, I uh, I do read, read um, okay. specifically. But but I have to say that you know the Chinese martial arts uh, training manuals. It, it feels weird for, for someone to be recommending that myself, but that's one I, you know I found it a really enjoyable read. And I just it's again it's pulling out the essence of what of what's being said in that book. Nice. I like that. So I have to check some of those out. All right. How about a, you're, you're like me, you kind of grew up in the eighties. Do you have a favorite martial arts video game? Ah, okay. So that, oh, okay. Um, it's going to have to be, yeah. I, I remember really enjoying double dragon as a kid. Yes. <laughs> but, yep. Uh, yep. If you really, really want to go 80 sort of retro, but, um, but, Ah, no, it's going to be Street Fighter 2. It's okay. Going to, it's going to be, give me that. Yeah, you know, Mortal Kombat was fun and things like that, but, I, mm-hmm. but it, it was the one I was going towards. It was going to be Street Fighter 2. I, see, um, I always went with Tekken myself just because that's the one I played the most, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think I kind of like when Tekken came out, it was I, – I, I was playing – I mean, look, I was really behind with all the technology. I mean, I used to uh, – you know, most of my experiences were playing on arcades. They were far more on playing on arcades than they were. And then I had a home computer. And it yep. was a Commodore C- C64. Hey, me too. Commodore. Uh, C- I still have a Commodore 64. <laughs> wow. Okay. <Yep. laughs> That's so cool. Nice. Yeah, yeah. There was, there was a Ninja game on that, I remember. Um, yep. They used to crash on me all the time. I can't, I can't remember what it was. but uh, I think it was just I called remember, Ninja. I remember that, actually. Yeah, yeah, there was Shinobi. There was Shinobi. I remember oh, that one was fun. Yep, yep. Uh, that, was, that was fun, too. But no, it's Street Fighter 2 was the one I probably captured. I probably played, wasted most of my uh, cash on, okay, <laughs> probably. Cool. And I, but I, I, never, I didn't ever had a PlayStation. I never had any kind of video games. I used to play on other people's. I used to go to other people's uh, places to, uh, um, to play on them. Tekken was great. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, Tekken was, you know, taking it to another an, an, another um, realm altogether. And, yeah. uh, again, you know, I enjoyed Mortal Kombat and uh, Final Fight. I remember that as well. So, yeah, I did used to. There were some, there were some really, really good ones. But, nice. yeah, so I'd say, you know, Street Fighter 2 probably is what captured my imagination the most. How about a favorite martial arts TV show? Ah, favorite t- martial arts TV show. Okay. Uh, uh, well, it's not going to be. Uh, uh, okay, I'm get to, get, not going retro. Well, it's kind of retro, but again, it's going to be Cobra Guy. Nice. Um, okay. <laughs> I uh, love just, it. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, yeah. It, it, it's just it's just written so well. It is it is written so well. The acting is. Um, varies um mm-hmm. but the, the the balance that they've struck in that show between uh of the uh of the of what you know what they now know is the dramedy so we you know when we had orange is the new black we kind of uh, um the world really saw the dramedy fully formed should right. we say previous to that you know there's been some great television shows that have tragedy in them uh, have pathos in them um you know i'm a big fan of a, of a lot of material that i mean I, I love classic comedy so you know but um, Orange is the New Black kind of gave it to everybody on a mainstream level. This is dramedy as its own genre, as its own respected genre. That's right. a balance of drama. And uh, Cobra Kai, it, I mean, none of it, it struck it struck this wonderful balance of being able to be self-aware without without looking down on the source material. Agreed. And and yep. so many franchises fail to do that. 
Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, and it could be and it showed that you yes you can be completely creative. You can create new characters. You can create relevant characters. You can create characters that can connect to the current generation and the generation that would have been the equivalent generation to those who got into the karate games. When before Cobra Kai ca- came out, I have to say I was sort of like. The Karate Kid was was it was something I'd enjoyed as a kid, and mm-hmm. I and I'd really I'd really liked it, but I kind of dismissed it a bit in my mind. You know, I um, I don't watch a huge number of martial arts movies. Um, okay, okay. Um, I mean, I did. It went for a phase when I when I did used to watch a lot of them. In in, in the, you know when I first got into martial arts, shall we say? That's when I, st- I started watching them, almost like as if I felt I needed to. But I did, did enjoy them. I did like mm-hmm. the Jackie Chan films. I did like a, 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 a Van Damme was a you know was was a big inspiration nice. um, as well in many many respects. So you know I'm, and you know I, I, I went through the whole the whole phase of that. But when it came to um, but yeah, the Karate Kid sort of in my mind was sort of relegated. When I heard they were going to do this this series um, that was going to be based on that. Really made me groan. The thought about, oh no, don't don't need to do this. Is this is it's this was it belongs in its own era. Leave it alone. You know, certain things are just like that. And then it came out on on uh, and, and then I started seeing the trailer. I started seeing some, and I went, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna get a I'm gonna get a uh, what is it, a trial subscription for YouTube at the time. YouTube Red, yeah. Yeah, it was YouTube YouTube Red, wasn't it? Yep. Originally, and I thought I thought, okay, I'm, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do. It. I'm, I'm just you know, it's it's just got to me. I'm just gonna do it. And I just loved it. And my daughter loved it as well. And that was great, you see, because yep, we've got two too. generations then really, and connecting to it. And she's not, martial arts isn't her thing at all. And uh, and she really liked it and she connected to the characters and uh, and it was great. And it's just, um, yeah, and I've thoroughly enjoyed seeing how what how they played through. There's been, um, yeah, I just think, uh, yeah, as far as, you know, I'd say as an actual martial arts piece, not rather than a than a piece that has martial arts in it, um, you know, I could say it's absolutely through and through a martial arts piece. I'd say uh, you know it's Cobra Kai. Uh, fight choreography um, isn't isn't necessarily always the greatest in the world, in, in, from, from what we're seeing. But then again, they weren't always the greatest in the, in the Karate Kid films either. True. As I said, there's so many things that people often miss the point of. I think with Cobra Kai, they don't see the irony that's in it um, because it's not dripping irony. They don't see the um, you know they see it's that very it's that, I say it's that self awareness, but at the same time saying yeah, but this is still our universe. In many ways, it's like. You know, when you read comic books, as a big comic book fan, you know, you get into a certain um, suspension of disbelief. You go, okay, I'm going into this this person's world, you know. So, you know, and when I go into this person's world, I have to accept these these are the realities of their world. And, you know, I don't believe, you know, what they do in there is necessarily karate, you know, or really what, what karate was really supposed, you know, it's a million miles away from anything that what Ian Abernethy teaches, right. or what, what uh, Chris Rowan teaches, or what, you know, a lot of other respected, you know, pra- practical traditionalists teach, teach, Gavin Mulholland teaches, you know, people like that. But it, that doesn't matter. It's it's the movie karate that is within that world. Everything that happens in that world, you know, it has its own accepted hyper reality that, that you go into and it's just done a great job and it's just you know say so it, it really is it's, it's it shows showing everybody the blueprint this is how you do it if you're going to continue a franchise this is how you do it not to say that every franchise should be continued no uh, there's plenty that shouldn't <laughs> exactly plenty that, yes yeah, yeah yeah there's plenty that just leave it you know i don't want to see 
a Jaws remake. I don't want to see it. We don't need to see it. We don't need to see it. It's a perfect movie. We don't need to see it. A Jaws prequel, um, yep, I think it's great. What's going on with um, The Book of Quint? Let's say that's out there. Another podcast I've been yep. following. I love the sound, the sound of that. I think that sounds amazing. It's actually realizing what Steven Spielberg wants to do. But no, I do. I really did. We don't, we don't need to see a Jaws remake. We don't, we don't need to see that. So a lot of stuff, you know, we don't need to see. Um, but again, but Cobra Cry, great. And the decision to finish it as well, to, yes. to actually make, let's make an ending point on their own terms, wonderful. What a wonderful thing to hear. And again, I really respect so many artists that have been able to do that. They've been able to see their full vision come to fruition, and they've been able to say, no, we, we this is where our story ends. This is where we finish. Agreed. And as Daniel Russo says, balance is my thing. I mean, <laughs> you kind of hit the nail on the head of that exactly. one. So, exactly, yeah. yeah. All right. How about a favorite? You know, you said you don't watch a lot of them, but how about a favorite martial oh, arts I knew movie? This was coming. I knew this was yeah, that's coming. right. <laughs> and I'll probably be kicking myself because there'll probably be one that uh, you know I did a whole podcast on underrated martial arts movies, actually. Uh, and I saw yeah, you did one on '80s movies. I got to go back and listen to that episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I did. Well, it's, I did a series called Martial Movie Massacre, and yep. uh, and a few people have uh, have said that that's a good jumping in point for my podcast, the Martial Movie Massacre because I could by bringing other people to give their views on their favorite martial arts either uh, it, it began as a, like in a critique of martial arts cliches what's your least favorite martial arts cliche in mm-hmm. a movie for example what do you believe should be put to bed and stuff like that so had people like um Ando Muazza and um Gretchen Carlson and stuff like that come you know come on the show and uh, and tell me what you know the things that they feel like you know we we, we don't want to see anymore in, in the films and and it's and it's been great but uh, I did one episode of that where I talked about underrated martial arts movies, like martial arts movies that I think have got some uh, validity to them more than, you know, than, than people appreciate. Oh dear. So, so what is the actual martial arts movie that, um, uh, that, 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 you know, I really, really like the, the one that I would say was my favorite. Um, I'd say probably, okay, I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to give it to a film that, um, it's not a guilty pleasure by any stretch of the imagination. I could say Rocky. I could say Rocky. Yeah. I, I see that as a great martial arts movie. Agreed. Um, but, it, but it does feel like a little bit of a cop-out. So i tell you what. And uh, you know, I think Kickboxer 2 is one of the most underrated martial arts movies. Not, not in, I think it's a very, very, very flawed film. But uh, there's some great writing in there. I mean, that, that, what's that wonderful? There's a wonderful line in there about um, sometimes it's better to flow than attack. And uh, sometimes it's better to attack, and a wise man knows when to do which. And I, and I, I love that. There's, there's wonderful little bits that are in there, but it's a very, very flawed movie. I couldn't say it's a favourite, but it's a, um, you know, it's a guilty pleasure. And uh, but the um, okay, I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to Beautiful Boxer. Okay, straight up give it to Beautiful Boxer. A really, you know, a brave film for its time as well. It's not an ancient martial arts movie, but 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 of the time. It just feels very as close to a documentary as they possibly could have made it um, in terms of uh, with Muay Thai and the, uh, the the culture over there. I met Nong Toon when I went over to Bangkok um, and just by chance meeting when I was there and I posed my photograph taken with her. Just the things that she had to overcome, uh, you know, so many people talk about, you know, barriers um, that, that people have to overcome in martial arts. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we're often martial arts often offered as a metaphor for fighting your own internal battles for overcoming great um, disadvantages in life for um, finding strength when um, against opponents that have got you know everything stacked in their favor and this tends to be this you know often this this pervading 
idea, should we say. That's the reason why martial arts move, some of the best martial arts movies are nearly always where you've got somebody who seems to be vulnerable and small and, and weak overcomes the much bigger, stronger um, villain, right? Protagonist. I think you know, if you want to talk about martial arts movies, some of the best fight scenes in, 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 uh, in martial arts movie history, you know, involve, for me, where the uh, the antagonist is the better fighter, really. It's, it's physically the better fighter all round. Uh, and I don't mean just a just typical big man, small man, man fight. Um, you know, you've got the big heel and the, the small heel. I don't like, <laughs> you don't need to edit this out, but, but I don't like the Steven Seagal approach of where, where, where the main guy, the main protagonist just doesn't get a single punch. Get to, he doesn't even suffer a single punch. I like seeing my, I, I didn't mind seeing my heroes lose as well, you know, in, you know, in their fight and they find some other means or whatever. And it's more, it's more than that, you know, when they overcome, come up adversaries. I mean, one of the great martial arts fight scenes of all time is, uh, you know, Empire Strikes Back, as far as I'm concerned. I think for the emotional content and storyline yep. that's being portrayed in there, I think that's an amazing the, uh, display of European sword play that's there. I think um, it's, it's, it's fabulous being shown in, for, you know, through, um, uh, in a way it's going to be really, really entertaining to a, um, a science fiction audience, a space fantasy audience, should we say. But Beautiful Boxer, the antagonists that are faced there are something else. You know, it's, it's bigotry, it's prejudice. You know, these are the things that uh, the, the, the main protagonist is overcoming and uh, and a willingness to be able to um, take on, you know, anyone, you know, physically, um, you know, any any kind of opponent and just society as, as a whole. You know, I think that's a really, really um, important lesson that's being imparted in that particular movie. So um, not that, you know, I, I can't say I know many people within that within that particular culture in, in, in Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm, again, the same person who... Um, the same person who 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 was who was offering me um, the Edinburgh Fringe um, uh, ran um, uh, what we call the the Lady Boys of Bangkok touring show. So okay. you know, I, so, so you know, I, I'm aware of that uh, of, of that culture of that area of show business and and, and the people uh, the artists that are, that are involved in that as well. And um, but yeah, um, you know, for the you know for the trans world, um, you know, I think um, Beautiful Boxer just presents um, a really really endearing lesson. I think and I think it also. I think a lot of people can connect to that. I, I, it doesn't feel like a buy the book, tick box, SJW corporate agenda that you see in so many films and things nowadays. You know, this is a film that I feel that a lot of people accept. I feel like nearly anybody I could put that film onto and provided they can get over the fact that it's, a, you know, any anyone provided the fact that they're, they're, they're cool with the subtitles, you know, right. obviously for the people who don't speak Thai, you know, sometimes might, you know, might not be cool with that, you know, whatever. But uh, provided they can get over the subtitle part of it, um, I think most people could watch that, and it would, um, and and it's good. I just, I just think it's, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's it's a very excellent film. It's very, it's very well made, uh, very well acted, very well executed, and it uh, again, it's the closest a film feels like a documentary without becoming a mockumentary. Oh, I, I've actually never seen that one, so now it's, it's added to my list. So, <laughs> so this question you might have already just answered it, but it doesn't have to be a martial arts movie, just a favorite movie fight scene yeah okay it's gonna be okay let's, the, the the easy one is to say that isn't it the empire strikes back yeah exactly um yeah there's, there's some great one i mean mark de versus jet lee in cradle to the grave should <sighs> yes. be yes. Should, should have been but it, it it's ah oh, how it was edited it just that, that that was when i heard that that fight scene was going to happen you know i i have an expansive interest in in in, in uh, martial arts fight scenes but Cradle to the Grave, um, Jet Li versus Mark DeCascos should have been, but sadly it wasn't. Yeah. And therefore, for sheer 
drama, how to use fight choreography to convey a story. Um, certainly the one that resonated with me. I mean, that's, I don't want to take anything away because I think, you know, Jackie Chan, you know, Meals on Wheels. I mean, come on. I mean, that's, you know, with, with Bunny the Jet Eucharets. That, mm-hmm. that's, that's amazing. You know, it's rightly considered one of the best of all time. There's, there are some amazing fight scenes out there. But uh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that fight scene, I remember I first saw that. I was six years old. And um, on, it was a rerun on the on the cinema. It was like a re-release on the cinema just, just ahead of Return of the Jedi. Nice. And uh, yeah, yeah. So, well, Return of the Jedi, it got me just ready for Return, a year ahead of Return of the Jedi, mm-hmm. released in 83, which is, this podcast will be recorded. It's the 40-year anniversary of Return of the Jedi. Yep. Uh, and I just thought, yeah, and all the lightsaber fights, I mean, yes, I mean, I met Ray Parks. I trained at, oh, um, nice. uh, for, for just two weekends, I trained at um, Alistair Monteith's uh, in London, um, and he was his uh, um, teaching partner. Um, so I had a little bit of exposure to that, and I, and I was at uh, the Mortal Kombat Annihilation auditions where I, where I saw Ray Park, said hello to Ray Park there. I think he's amazing. I think the stuff he's done in films is brilliant, he, including things that uh, he doesn't get enough credit for, things like when he did the, the uh, stunt fight choreography in films like uh, um, Sleepy Hollow, the Tim Burton Sleepy mm-hmm. Hollow. Um, I think it was, you know, when Ray Park, have him do the physicality of that, I think it was... I mean, it's not not a fair comparison, but it's a bit like Andy Serkis doing Gollum and then respect the physicality he brought to the role was so good um, to, to that. And I love seeing him as Darth Maul in uh, in The Phantom Menace. And, yes. um, but, but but in terms of, of getting that actual intensity, the conveyance of the story going on, you know, you've got your main uh, protagonist fighting the antagonist, um, losing all the way, getting his little glimpse of hope all the time. And then you get the bitter ending the bitter ending, which is, um, you know, and, uh, you know, technically, well, you know, lose his hand, you know, mm-hmm. all the things, you know, you, and what we would, what came out to us as a used certificate mo- movie over here, in our rating systems, this was for all the family to watch, you know, and you'd have to be, you know, kid, kid could go in there and watch that film and yep. boom, there you've got, you know, Luke Skywalker getting Jamie Lannister in, you know, just at the very, you know, just at the conclusion of the fight. And then we get delivered the big twist in the film after that and yes. coupled all with that and, you know, no, it's just you know, there's more than enough and better people in the Star Wars and and uh, and movie critics um, area that that can give that uh, scene uh, justice, a critique justice. But for me, it just presents so many things there. I love. I tell you, what I like about it so much, and I liked seeing this in uh, in good fight scenes. I believe, um, from what I can remember, the Yakuza movie has a lot of this as well. Is the use of dialogue during a fight scene so you've got breaks in the fight and you get the dialogue between the between the antagonists when you get so much fight choreography that it's just it's all the same sort of tempo if you know what i mean backwards and forwards backwards that's great that's wonderful to watch but if it goes on for too long it becomes a martial arts demonstration you've got to remember that these two people involved are characters and you've got to have an investment in one of those characters and that so that to me again was that fantastic example of you know an overwhelmed protagonist who everyone's invested in um, you know his age. You know who's representative. Of a lot of the a lot of the main people who have been watching the film at the time, if you like. So they kind of seal themselves in that role. And uh, yeah, and some I know some about it seems like a little bit of a hark back to the days of you know the movie The Vikings. You know with um, Kirk Douglas and uh, Tony Curtis. Of course, I've got some affection for Tony Curtis, being the fact that he starred in Trapeze. Um, because you know it was also um, an amputee. Uh, warrior you know at, at the very end in, in that fight scene and then um you know of course the uh the errol flynn um uh, basil rathbone basil rathbone of 
an excellent fencer, a real life martial artist in, in that respect. Yeah, I see elements of that sort of coming into Empire Strikes Back. Um, in animated films, I, I love the end fight scene between Justin and Jenna in The Secret of Nim. Um, and nice. Never in the book, completely out of the book. But that fight scene used elements from the Vikings, used elements from uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood, you know, the 1930s one uh, a film from Disney. And it used elements um, uh, from... I think it might have been a Three Musketeers. But anyway, I know it's got the Vikings and I know it's got uh, uh, the Legend of Robin Hood in there. Um, it's actually copied almost scene for scene for that end fight scene in um, The Secret of Nim. And as a kid, that, again, that really got my imagination going. So it's, it's interesting. Again, I'm not typically a weapons martial artist. I mean, I did some broadsword and some staff and when I was doing wushu. Um, obviously, I've done you know some Filipino martial arts and uh, Malaysian martial arts as well. Um, not to any particular high level, just to, uh, enough to help complement some of the hard skill stuff I've done. Uh, doing edged weapons awareness and defense program, but I'm not the weapons guy, if you know what I mean, Brian. So, right. but but, it's, but yet, funny enough, when it, when I'm sort of like, it's like I say, you know, it's, it's when you when you get asked these questions, what's your favorite or what's your apocalypse books and things like that? Sometimes for me, it surprises me. You know, you know when people said. When I was asked what my three favourite movies of all time were, I surprised me when I just came when I just came up with them. When as you've just done that there, you've just gone, you know, what's your, you know, what, what are your favourites there? And I haven't really thought long and deep about them because I, you know, I enjoy a lot of media. You know, I enjoy a lot, I yep. read a lot. I, I love cinema. I, you know, um, love TV. I think we're in a golden age of television as well. So, and I, you know, I love drama. I love show business. So, you know, these are all areas that I, I think a lot about, but. Um, it actually comes down to, oh, my God, what are your favourites? So um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you've teased that out of me. So, yeah, it's going <laughs> to it's gonna be. It's definitely Empire Strikes Back is definitely the best martial arts fight scene <laughs> for me. Jamie, I got to say that this has been such uh, an amazing experience. I've, I've loved chatting with you and hearing your story, and I, I, I hope I can meet you in person someday. And maybe do some training or even just sit and talk about movies or something. <laughs> but it's, it's been so much fun. And, and I will put links for all your stuff, for your, for your podcast, for your website, for your books on Amazon, everything else I'll put out there. And when the episode comes out in about a month, but uh, any, any last minute parting words that you want to leave us with before I let you go? Um, no, um, th- thanks very much for putting all that material out there for the, for the links out there. That's, that's great. I look forward to hearing from people. I, I virtually train as well. So there's people on the other side of the pond. Um, but just thank you, Brian. Thanks so much for um, inviting me on the show. I feel really privileged. Oh, thank you. It's been a blast and, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.